interesting, thought-provoking, and also disturbing experiments I've come across happened at uh, UC Berkeley about 25 years ago. These researchers uh, decided they had two test groups of um, Norwegian field rats, and they took test group A, and they put these field rats in a pool, in a tub, and let them swim around for a while, and their goal uh, was to see how long these Norwegian field rats could swim before drowning. I know, sounds crazy, doesn't it? They need Jesus, those researchers. But, uh, um, and so they dis- determined that an average field rat from Norway uh, can swim seven hours before they drown. Then they took test group B, Norwegian field rats. They also put them in the pool with one exception, one variable to the experiment. Uh, when it looked like the Norwegian rat was about ready to drown, uh, someone would reach in, pull the rat out for just a couple seconds, not enough for them to really regain their strength, just a couple seconds, and then put them back in. And then they watch them keep swimming, keep swimming, and when it looked like they were about ready to drown, they take them out and just pull them out for just a couple seconds and pull them back in, right? Test group B were able to swim on average 20 hours before drowning. And the question was, why? Why seven hours, 20 hours? And this is what the researcher said. It said test group B was able to swim so much longer because they had hope. You know, I, we're not that much different than Norwegian field rats. In the sense that if we don't have hope, we're going to drown a lot quicker. You see, what, what oxygen is for your lungs, hope is for your life. I, we got going last week. Carl got us started on our Christmas December series, The Thrill of Hope, and as I pick up the baton and take us for the next couple of weeks, uh, as we get started, I want to talk to you about not just the thrill and the excitement that is hope, but, but why. What, what's the importance of hope? There's three things. I want you to jot these down. Three reasons why hope is important. Number one, hope is the intellectual grounds for believing. So if you've been part of one of our discipleship classes, our Harvard apologetics class, I hope you'll sign up for them at some point in time. The, the anchor verse is what you have on the screen, First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where, where Peter says that you and I need to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reason, for the, for the hope that we have. And so when it comes to defending your faith and defending what this book says, it's not just intellectual. It's also based upon the hope that Christ gives us. It's the intellectual grounds for believing. Hope is also the emotional reason why Christians should be the most optimistic and positive people on planet Earth. Now, the problem is some of us are not. And some of us need to change the chip and change that around. But there is reason for optimism because of the hope that Scripture gives us. Jeremiah 29 is a very famous verse, verse 11, where where the prophet says, do you realize the plans that God has for you? the plans to prosper you. Now, a lot of us American Christians hear that and we think that that the plans that he has for us is to give us wealth. It may include that a little bit, but that's not necessarily what he means. The plans to prosper you. Then he goes on, the plans to give you hope. See, our optimism and our, our reason to be positive people is based upon what God says he's going to do in and through our lives. But the last one I want to talk to you a little bit about is that the importance of hope is that it is the spiritual foundation for salvation. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's that chapter that sometimes gets read at 
at weddings. It's the chapter on love and blah, blah, blah. But verse 13, I have it for you on the screen. It, the, the Apostle Paul is wrapping up his, his argument, and he says, listen, I want you to understand that these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Now, we talk a lot about love. The Apostle Paul in chapter 13 emphasizes that it's a big deal. We have sermons on love and Bible studies on love and worship songs about love and we read authors that write about love. And so we're doing pretty good on understanding that's pretty important. Check. When it comes to faith, we talk about that a lot. We talk about our faith journey and taking our next step closer to Jesus, right? With the beginning of this year, we had a seven-week series on what is faith and how to get faith and how to strengthen your faith and how to grow your faith. Churches spend a lot of time working on their statement of faith. We put it on the website. So we're doing pretty good when it comes to faith. Check. But what, why don't we have a statement of hope? You know any church that has that? I've been your pastor for 25 years. We've never had a series on hope. I've had formal education in the Christian world for 14 years. My my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, and my doctorate degree. And as I thought about it this, this week, I thought, you know what? I have not had one, not one lecture on hope ever. And my question is this. If Paul is identifying for us, listen, when you boil it down, the Christian journey, you've got to have three things. You've got to have love, you've got to have faith, and you've got to have hope. How is it that we've missed the hope factor how is it that we don't talk about it more don't think about how to build it and how to grow it i was reading about this one marriage counselor who was incredibly successful at taking couples who were really having a tough time turning them around and heading them in the right direction and um what was interesting to me is that this 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 person said that i'm i don't think i'm really that good of a counselor and that got my attention because he was very very successful but he didn't think his skill uh, of counseling was that high he said you know i'm more of a i'm more of a cheerleader motivator and then he added this he said i just i just try to get 10 percent improvement when couples get that 10 percent improvement they get hope and when someone gets hope anything is possible i want you to grab your study guide even if you're not looking doing the notes look at the title for this morning's study you see it it's called up yours by 10%. <laughs> My goal is to help you take your hope and up your score by 10%. Up your percentage by 10, right? Because if you can get hope, you know what? If you can get hope, your relationships are going to get better and your marriage is going to get better and your finances are going to get better. Heck, your health might get better. Your spiritual journey is going to get better. Your career is going to get better. But you need hope for that to carry the momentum. I need you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to say to them, up yours by 10%. Go ahead and tell them real quick. Okay, see, now some of you, some of you said it with an attitude that I did not intend, and you know who you are, and if you did that prayer room right after church, you, you need a little prayer. So what I want to do for the next three weeks is I want to give you some um, key characteristics of, well, okay, what do I do? You, okay, you made sense to us. We need more hope. How do I get it? How do I grow it? How do I increase my count? So we're going to talk, be talking about five characteristics over the next three weeks. We're going to talk about two of them this morning. Here's the first one. You need to refocus on the future. 
You need to get a new pair of lenses and look at your tomorrow in a different way. I came to the United States when, um, from Spain as a missionary kid in my senior year of high school. And because the driving age in Europe and in Spain is, is 21, I was the only high school senior that did not have a license. So I went to driver's ed, and I was with a bunch of, you know, freshmen and sophomores and, you know, the people that were, your kids were younger. And so I finally went through the classes, and then you have the, 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 the instruction on the road. And so um, now this is Michigan in the winter with snow. Okay, so you can already, it's already a little nerve-wracking to just be around the wheel the first time. But that's, that was my scenario. And so I still remember one particular thing my driver instructor told me that I've never forgotten. We were driving, and she says to me, pull over, please. I go, come again, pull over right now. Oh, okay, so I pulled over. And she says to me, she says, you know, I've noticed now, you, we've been out two times, and I've noticed you're doing something when you drive, that if you continue to do it, you will be a danger to yourself and to others on the road. If you continue to do it, I promise you, you will be in an accident, and you will cause other people to be in an accident. She had my attention. She said this, you know what I've noticed about you when you, die, when you drive? You spend way too much time looking at the rearview mirrors instead of spending most of your time looking for the windshield. It's helpful every once in a while to glance in the rearview mirror and see what's behind you, to glance at the rearview mirror and see if someone's in your blind spot. That's helpful, but you're spending too much time doing it. If you spend too much time trying to figure out what's behind you, and instead of what's in front of you, you're going to crash. And you know what? Some of us do the exact same thing in life. We spend far too much time looking in our rearview mirror. Some of us at our successes, but some of us are consumed with our failures. And we can't shake them. And what the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, he would say, forgetting what is behind not literally, because you can never do that, but here's a guy who has a horrible past. You want to know how God wants you to live? Forgetting what is behind. Don't, okay, glance at your rearview mirror occasionally. There's lessons to be learned in how you live life in the past. But what you really need to do is straining towards what is ahead and in front of you. You need to spend more time looking through the windshield of life. Now, as you do that, you have to do that with a hope-filled heart. Or mind. So what I want to do is I want to give you some specifics. Is how do, you, how do you look at your tomorrow in a different way so that it fills you with hope instead of drains you from hope? There's three things I want to encourage you to do. Number one is believe that impossible things really are possible. Believe that impossible things are possible. Jesus is speaking in Mark chapter 9, and he says, everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, question, do you believe that verse? Do you believe that verse? Okay, so now watch. Do you believe that if I believe that verse, anything is possible? That's what it says, right? Everything? If I genuinely believed with my entire heart, complete faith, that I can become the heavyweight champion of the world. Why are you laughing? Why are you? Guys. You have to be careful not to just pluck one verse out of context. No, it is not possible, sister. It is not possible. I am not going to become the heavyweight champion of the world. I don't care how much I lift. There's no way I'm going to become that. 
See, you, what you need to understand is that he has given you a sliver of trying to help you understand your tomorrow. It's not just about positivity. Now, here's what he's saying. Look at the next verse, Luke 1, 37. Nothing is impossible. He flips it with, with God on your side. You see, he's not talking about me becoming heavyweight champion of the world in these verses. He's not talking about me starting a business. He's not talking about me getting a job. You know what he's talking about? Primarily, he's thinking about my spiritual journey in the future. Now, in that context, now look at the verses. So you've got, you got to be very careful to just pluck one verse out of contents and all of, all of a sudden make it say something that it's not necessarily saying. You have to believe when it comes to your spiritual journey and what he's trying to do in your life to change you, perfect you, and sanctify you that everything is possible. Some of you, most of you should recognize the picture of the guy on the left. Let's put it on the screen. Steve Jobs has had an influence on probably most people in this world in the last 25 years because of his business sense and in particular him being the co-founder of Apple. And uh, there's, if you read anything about Steve Jobs, you'll, you'll know that what is said about him in leadership books is that when it came to this principle, he was a guy that really believed the impossible. Uh, he, he was someone that would go to his research team and, and, and they would say, sorry, that's not possible to build. And he would go, no, it is possible. Get back in there. Let's figure it out. In fact, there's a term that they use specifically for him and this incredible kind of miraculous belief that he had in the impossible. And they called it the Steve Jobs distortion field. They literally called it a term. One of the famous stories about how he believed the impossible is when he was first beginning to create what many of us have in our pockets and our purses, the iPhone. And the story is told that when the first production of the iPhone was coming out, he stopped the production halfway through and he went to his team and he says, I am just, I am not satisfied with what we're producing. And in particular, what he wasn't satisfied was with the cover, with the face. It was made out of plastic. And he says, listen, what, what we're charging people, it, it can't have a plastic front. It feels cheap. It feels chintzy. I don't want a plastic front on our phone. You know what I want? I want a glass front on our phone. And, 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 and he says, I want a glass that doesn't crack. I want a glass that's durable. I want a glass that's not scratched easily. I want a, a, a piece of glass that when you, someone takes it out of their pocket or purse and they drop it by accident, it doesn't all the time, every time crack. That's what I want. Right? And so he met with the guy on the right side of the screen. He is the CEO of Corning Glass. His name is Wendell Weeks. And he explained to him what he wanted for the iPhone. And, and Mr. Weeks said, sorry, Steve, but we don't ha that glass doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And, and, and as the meeting was ending, he said, you know, actually, in the 1960s, our research department developed uh, uh, something in the lab that they referred to as Gorilla Glass. And it, it has much of the same characteristics that you're just talking about. And Steve Jobs says, I want it. You, I'll pay whatever you need. That's what I want on my iPhone. And Mr. Weeks said, no, you don't understand. That glass doesn't exist. It, it was just a concept in the lab. In fact, we don't even, have, even if we could make it, we don't even have a factory to produce it, mass produce it for your phone. To which Steve Jobs famously responded, I believe in the impossible. I believe in you and your team. Go back to your company, figure it out. 
Within 12 months, the iPhone was released to the world market, and let me show you what was on the front. <laughs> what you have on your phone is what's known as Gorilla Glass. It was created when someone said it couldn't be created. And my question for you is this. When did business executives begin to have more faith in the future than those of us who base our lives on the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We are so doggone rational that we have forgotten and lost the magic and the mystery that is Jesus saying, when I'm on your side, anything is possible. You have to change your perspective about your tomorrow. The second thing you need to do is you need to believe that God has better days ahead of you. In 19, the 1940s, there was a utility company that was going to build a dam on what's called the Dead River in Maine, the state of Maine. And they had received that contract from, from, the, from the state of Maine. Um, and, and as you build a dam and it gets higher and higher, of course, the river stops and it then floods that valley. Well, there was one problem is that in that valley was a small town. And so as the river and the water was going to raise, that, that town would be submerged and flooded. And so um, the, uh, the utility company went to this town. They met with the townspeople and they said, listen, we've got, we've got the permit. It's going to happen. And we know what that means to you. We know that your town is going to be no more at some point. It's going to be flooded. But um, we are going to buy your home at, at, at top value. So we're going to give you a very good price for your home. And... It's going to take us a while to get production going and get the dam built and everything while uh, everything is being constructed and before the flooding begins. Uh, not only will we buy your home from you at top market value, uh, but we will allow you to live in that home for free for until, until you have to move out. So, you know, it was, it was a utility company doing everything they could to take into account these poor people were going to lose their home, be displaced, have to move somewhere else. But what is interesting and why I tell you this story is what happened to the town almost immediately after the announcement was made that a dam was being constructed. And, and what, what I want to help you understand is that that, that that town went from being a very quaint, cute town that people would drive through and kind of vacation in occasionally. It went from that overnight to a dilapidated town. A fence would get blown over during a windstorm, and they wouldn't fix it. A window would get broken because kids are throwing rocks and goofing off. They wouldn't fix it. There's a big pothole in the ground. Not fix it. Why? Well, you know why. Why would I spend time, energy, and money when, when eventually it's all going to go away? When eventually my town is going to be submerged in water? Why would I spend that time and effort doing that? Now, I get it for a town that's going to be submerged underwater. What I don't get is why some of us do that in our very own lives. Because we have things that are broken in our lives. And we're not motivated to fix them. And some of us, it's because we look into our future and we don't understand that God has better days ahead of us. And what I want you to understand is Philippians 1. Paul says this, listen, you need to be confident. You need to be confident, have a 100% guaranteed confidence that he, God, who began a good work in you when you asked Jesus in your life, that God will carry that on to completion. And because of that, it motivates you to fix yourself today because tomorrow is better. 
Does that make sense? You have got to get more hope in your life. You've got to get it. The last thing I want to encourage you to do to refocus on tomorrow is you have to replace fear with faith. I was reading in preparation for this morning and someone came up with this acronym for fear that I thought was very clever. People that are filled with fear, the F stands for focused on the problem. Almost exclusively. The E stands for they expect to lose. Okay? If you've been ever in the world of athletic sports or coaching, that's one of the biggest jobs that a coach does is just trying to convince their team there's hope to beat this team that's better than us. If you think you're going to lose, you're going to lose. Game over. A stands for your attitude stinks. If you're controlled by fear, a big part of the problem is your very own attitude of negativity and cynicism. And the R stands for someone who runs from trouble and challenges. We do the opposite of what David did when he saw the big giant Goliath. If you're living your life controlled by anxiety and fear, I promise you, I don't even have to meet with you. Your hope score and grade is very, very low. And you, what I'm wanting you to do is flip it. Flip it from fear and anxiety to faith. One, one of these Sundays, we will have a Sunday focused just on the Christmas story. But I'm thinking in the, as you reflect on the Christmas story in Scripture, it's very interesting to me that almost all the characters are filled with fear at some point in the story. The shepherds, they're out on the field, you know. They're just, you know, eating some sunflower seeds, talking to each other around a fire. And all of a sudden, filled with fear because of the angels. And I, I sort of get it, but that's their first response. Herod meets with the wise men. Read it, Matthew. And it says that immediately after, all of Jerusalem was, quote, disturbed and filled with fear because of how Herod handled that message. A little bit, a little bit later, the town of Bethlehem, filled with fear as Herod's men march in on their horses to kill all the boys two years and under. I can understand that. But what's interesting is that one of the superstars in the story, Mary, at the very beginning of the Christmas story, her first response to the angel is fear. Come again? You said, I, I'm going to what? Have a baby? And immediately the angel responds to her, Mary, girl, look, girl, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be filled with thoughts of anxiety. And then as the conversation goes on, just within a couple verses, we see why God picked Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Because we see in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, that Mary answers and concludes the conversation with the angel. And she says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be as you've said. Which is a very definition of faith. God, I'm going to trust you and obey you regardless of consequences or circumstances. You see, if you want to be filled with hope, the first thing you have to do is you have to change the way you think about your future. Until you do that, your hope is going to continue to drain from you instead of be filled inside of you. Okay? Second thing you need to do is you need to recharge your batteries. Recharge your batteries. This past, I think it was Wednesday night or early Thursday morning, Sandy and I had been asleep for a couple hours. You know, so it's the dead of, dead of night. We're, we're sound asleep. And all of a sudden... In the middle of the night, this is what we heard in our home. Beep! And initially you're like, was that my dream? You know, and you're like, I think everything's good. So then we kind of went back to sleep. And about a minute later, you want to know what we heard? Beep! 
And I'm like, what are my parents doing? You know, their time zone is all messed up where they come from. Another minute, beep! And of course, you know what that is. The, the, the fire alarm smoke detectors were alerting us to the fact that the battery was getting low, right? And it, that's, and by the way, it's a great little feature because you don't want the battery to go low, go low, go low, go dead, and then when there's a fire in the kitchen, it doesn't go off because it's not working. So it's a great little feature. Not so, not so much, though, when it goes off at 1.30 in the morning, you know? So, you know, Sandy had to get up and repair that and fix that, and so <laughs> I was going to focus on reading God's Word. I got up, I got up. Wouldn't it be nice if life every once in a while we heard a beep? When we were heading into trouble? When we were running out of gas? It, it, we, we don't have a literal beep, but I did come across some research that gives us an indication of when, when you might be tired, burning out, and running on fumes. Let me show you. You might be tired, burning out, and running on empty if... Little things make you angry. Oh, no, I get it. Big things can make us angry. I get that. But when, when you're losing your cool over little things, you might be tired and burning out if you're becoming increasingly more cynical. If you're experiencing what, what therapists call brain fog, which is literally lack of concentration, you just, you, you can't, you, your mind is kind of going everywhere. You might be tired and burning out if your productivity is dropping at work, at school, your grades, at home. You might be running on empty if you're self-medicating. So you know how self-medication works. So take my example. I just got coming off a leg injury. I'm starting to get better. I'm not taking pills. I haven't for a while. No more pain medication. But I didn't finish all the pills. I still have some of them in my medicine cabinet. And what some of us do is that six months from now or a year from now, when life starts to fall apart and we're trying to figure out what do I do to cope, you know, dang, in that cabinet, I still got some pills. Some of us self-medicate with alcohol. Some of us self-medicate with food. Some of us self-medicate by going to the mall and spending money. Some of us self-medicate by sexual addiction. You see, we ha all have our own way to figure out what do I do with the hole that I feel right here. Some of us might be tired, burning out, and running on empty. We don't laugh as often. Remember when we used to laugh more? Some of us are running on empty if when we sleep or when we take time off, that doesn't refuel us. And some of us be tired, burning out, and running on empty if Everyone. We, I get it that sometimes some people, but if everyone drains you, you want to know what that's an indication of? Beep. You see, why is this so important? This is why it's so important. You cannot be a hopeful person if you're tired. And by tired, I don't mean I had a good workout at the gym. By tired, I don't mean I'm an accountant and it's tax season. Because there are seasons of life when we get a little crazy. I get that. I'm talking about tired right here. It's not good. It's not wise. So what do we do about it? Let me give you two suggestions. Number one is you need to minimize what drains you. What's sapping your energy? Now, every one of us is different. Everyone is affected differently by life and stress and situations and problems. But, but 
for the most part, what you see on the screen drains all of us. You, if, it's, if your issue isn't on the screen, you've got to find what's draining me. For some of us, it's an unbalanced schedule. Luke chapter 4, verse 42 tells us that Jesus decided to take time to go be alone and quiet. Question, do you have alone and quiet time? Or do you have exercise time? Or do you have hanging out with friends party time? Or do you have enough church time? You see, I, it's not just alone quiet time. The issue is unbalance. All of those things are important in your life. And if Jesus found the need to do that, how much more should we? Some of us are drained by unnecessary guilt. So you need to understand that sometimes there's two emotions that feel the same but are completely different. Guilt and conviction. See, conviction is what you feel on the inside. You feel bad on the inside. And what that is is the Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder going, really? Come on, stop doing that. That's conviction. And, and the Holy Spirit does that, wants to kind of make you feel bad a little bit, so that it drives you to A, confess, I was wrong, B, repent, I won't do it anymore. That's conviction. Now, once you've gotten over that, confessed and repentant, repent, repented, if you are on the other side and you seem to feel the same thing, you feel bad, but it's guilt after confession and repentance that is not from the Holy Spirit, that is from our enemy. He's wanting you to focus on what you've done as if it's still a problem. Now, you and I might still deal with the consequences of what we've done, but how about we drop the emotions? You see, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 says this. When you and I confess, when you and I repent, you want to know what God does? He forgets my sin. Not literally, because he, he knows everything. It means that he doesn't hold it against you. So if God isn't holding your past against you, why are you? Does that make sense? You are burdened by guilt. And this book tells you, and the sacrifice of, of, of Jesus tells you, you don't need to. So don't let the enemy do that. The third is uncontrolled thoughts. By uncontrolled thoughts, I mean negative thoughts. I'm not good enough thoughts. Worrisome thoughts ungrateful thoughts, nothing will ever change thoughts, anxious thoughts, sinful thoughts, I'm useless thoughts, nobody likes me thoughts, what's the point thoughts? It, see, we make the mistake of thinking we can't control our thoughts. They're just, it's like a, 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 a dog off its leash, you know, at the dog park, just running around in my mind. But, and yet Paul tells us in Corinthians 10 that no, 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 you can control your thoughts. Now, by control, it doesn't mean you can't stop thinking about it, right? Don't think about a yellow submarine. Don't think about a yellow submarine. What are you thinking about? A yellow submarine. It doesn't mean you can't, it, you might still think about it. It means you can control it and minimize the influence it has on your life. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, you have to go after those thoughts that are unhealthy, ungodly, literally put them in handcuffs, throw them in prison, and don't let them influence you. Reject them. Nope, that's not me. Oh, no, I know it's still going around in my mind, but that's not godly. It's not me. I'm not going to respond to it. I'm not going to act it out. And then instead, replace it with Philippians 4 thoughts. Philippians 4, Paul gives us a list of think of things that are good and pure and, and righteous. You've got to go after your thought life because it's powerful. It's powerful. 
And the last is unhealthy people. You want to know why some of us feel stress at Christmas? You want to know why? Because in a couple weeks, you're going to be spending time with some of your family. <laughs> yeah. And they're family, and I love them. But goodness gracious me, do, are they draining? Now, I want you to notice that this point is not eliminate what drains you, because sometimes you can't. They're my family. I'm going to be with them. But what you need to learn to do is you need to minimize the influence that they have on you and the response and the power that you give them. You've got to figure that out. The next thing that you have to do, you, you don't just minimize what drains you. You have to do the flip side. You have to increase what fuels you. It's both. It's not just one. Minimize what drains you. Increase what fuels you. So the first one is you need more Sabbath. You go, what is Sabbath? That's a Bible word, but it's an important principle that means that God has created you with a seven-work-week rhythm. Five days you're supposed to give to your employer. Okay? One day you typically do work for your house, your family, right? You do chores, you do laundry, you do groceries, you run the kids to soccer practice, blah, 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 right? And then that last day, that seventh day, should be a day where you focus exclusively on worship, most of us do that on Sundays, and rest. Some of us, because of work, right? So for example, Sunday is not my Sabbath. I end up tired at the end of, uh, of Sunday, right? So some of us, if you're a nurse, you're a police officer, you have to be a little more creative how you do that. But five days to work for your employer, one day to work for your family, and then one day to Sabbath. Worship and rest. Worship, you're doing it now. You can check that off. Rest. You want to know one of the most godly things some of you could do this afternoon is go home and take a nap. I mean, really, really, some of you need it. You look horrible. You know? You should. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't very encouraging, but it's true. Okay. Uh, the next one is you need more good relationships. Not just relationships. You get the point. People that, that feed you, that energize you. You know, there's people like that. Sandy and I, were in this season where we're busy. I mean, we're really, really busy. Busy work, busy, busy family, busy. Uh, normally, my, my days off are Friday, Saturday. Well, I literally work all day Friday, and I work three quarters of the day Saturday. It's just the season that we're going in as a church and everything, and I'm not complaining, but I, I, I've been working. And Saturday afternoon, yesterday afternoon, Sandy says to me, you know, I, want, I think I'm going to go to Costco and, and Vallejo. It's not as busy. I want to go out and get some things. You want to come with me? And I still had work to do, but I was like, I'm going to go. Spend some time with Sandy. So we were driving, and as we're driving, she says to me, she says, you know, we were invited to that Christmas party tonight, Saturday night. And, and we started talking, and we both were like, should we go? We just, we kind of just want to sit on the couch and veg, because we were tired. And then I said to her, I said, well, wait, babe, wait. we know the people that are going to that party. And we like those people, right? Uh, and, and they energize us. How about, we, how about we at least go for a little bit? And we were tired, right? We were supposed to bring a dish. We're like, oh, we don't have time. We just grabbed some baklava from Costco. Here you go, whatever, you know. And, and we went to the party. And you know what happened when we left? we left with a little bit more of a skip in our step. And see, you got to do the same thing. Your calendar, my calendar, it's so full, but you got to understand the way God created us is sometimes we are re-energized by people. 
we're drained by people and energized by people. It's both. The last one is we need a little more Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 15. I actually want to give you this verse because it's a great verse. We're going to wrap up with this. Verse 13. May the God of hope. That's what we're talking about, right? We've got to get a higher hope score. The God of hope will fill you with all joy and with peace as you trust him. So he gives you all these suggestions and you fill out your sermon notes. What he wants you to do is trust him and actually do it. And if and when you do it, it says that God, he will over, he, you will overflow with hope. You see, some of us, you know, our hope is way low. We're hoping for a 10% increase. And what I'm saying to you is if you apply what God is telling you, increase goodness you will have so much hope it'll overflow it'll spill out onto other people and now notice how you get it overflow with hope by the power of the holy spirit power of the holy spirit francis gary powers was a u2 pilot that on may the 1st 1960 was flying over the soviet union he was taking pictures for our government. We did not realize that the Soviets had created surface-to-air missiles that now could hit our U-2 planes. And he was shot out of the sky. He was able to eject from the plane. But of course, he landed in the Soviet Union. He was immediately arrested, ca captured. He was put on trial, and he was convicted of espionage, for which he spent three years in prison. And then some of you may have seen the movie Bridge of Spies featuring Tom Hanks. It's the story of this guy. And after three years, we, we created a, a prisoner exchange where we gave them one of their spies and they gave us Francis Powers. And he came back to the United States. And when he came back, he began to work for the United States government as an experimental aircraft pilot. He was flying the most sophisticated and most dangerous planes that our government was creating to see if they would work. That was his job. Towards the end of his career, he left the United States government Air Force and he took a job working for a TV station in Los Angeles. He was their helicopter pilot. And, and, and he and a reporter would fly over the highways in Los Angeles and they would report to their listeners what highway to take and which one was busy and so on and so forth. But on August the 1st, 1977, this happened. Let me show you. His helicopter went down, and he and the reporter both died. Now, it's not unusual for there to be helicopter crashes. Why this made the news, however, is why the helicopter crashed. Powers crashed the helicopter because he ran out of gas. And the report was like, how could this guy who flew U-2 planes over the Soviet Union, a guy that survived three years in a Russian prison, a guy who who flew the most dangerous experimental aircraft that our country was producing, how could he die because he ran out of gas? I don't want to be melodramatic or anything, but the same thing is going to happen to some of you if you don't make some changes. 
you are running on fumes. And as your pastor, I'm telling you, that's not wise. You have to have the wisdom to know, I got to make some changes. God never intended you to live that way. Figure out what drains you and try and minimize it. And figure out what fuels you and have more of that. I want to wrap up with a quote from a Methodist pastor that as I was studying, I, it just struck me. His name is Charles Allen, and he said this. When you say that a situation or a person is hopeless, what, what we are actually doing is slamming the door in the face of God. And I'm here to remind you as we wrap up our study time, you are not hopeless. Your situation is not hopeless. The problem and obstacle you're facing is not hopeless. And it's not hopeless because of the person of Jesus Christ. Don't you ever forget that. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to ask you a question for you to reflect on. Why did God want you here this morning? What did he want you to hear? Are you here today because you need to have a renewed, refreshed focus on your future? You need to understand that the impossible is possible, that God has plans for you. Maybe that's why God brought you today, and he needs you to make some changes. Or did God bring you here today because you are running on fumes, and you are burning out, and God wants you to make some changes? Why did he have you here this morning? What does he want you to learn and apply? I'm going to give you 20 seconds. You and God, figure it out and tell him. Mm -hmm.